Welcome back, besties. It's another episode of the Spooky Rip Jean Mom. I definitely feel like I haven't done this in forever, which I know that I haven't. It's been over a week since I posted a podcast. Life has been super, super hectic. We had to find Paisley a new sitter because her sitter found a different job. And so we were on the hunt for that. Work has been kind of crazy. And so finally back into the routine of things, kind of have a schedule. I thought about maybe only posting like an episode once a week, but I thought that'd be kind of boring, especially if the research doesn't take me too, too long. There should be no reason why I should get some out. So basically, it's a kind of an unexpected thing. I would assume I would post probably two episodes per week, probably on Mondays and Thursdays, but I'm very excited to get into this. I was telling Bailey that I really wanted to post another one, but I'm not going to lie. This one was a lot. The guy is disgusting and it mentally was kind of exhausting to go through all this. So I'm really excited to jump back into it. So let's get started. It's episode five, which means we are on California. And we are going to talk about the Golden State Killer. Today I'm going to do a little bit different than normal. Um, Normally I tell you the background, like who it was first. And then I go into the crimes and the trials and stuff like that. But this all took place in the 1970s to 1986. And we actually did not find out who the Golden State Killer was until 2008. So I'm going to start with the crimes, all of them from the very, very beginning, from his very first nickname, until we find out who he is. We do know that it's a he. I will say that right away so it can be a little bit easier for me so I don't have to be like, they, they. It's easier for me to just be like, it was a guy. The plain and simple. Um, And then it'll be a two-parter because it is really, really long. When I tell you this man had he committed so many crimes it blew my freaking mind so then the second part will be posted hopefully Tuesday or Wednesday and it's going to be about how they caught him and the trial so I'm very excited to get into this he had very different nicknames he was originally known as the Vasilius Ransacker also known as the East Area Rapist, and then eventually the Golden State Killer. So we're going to start with his Vasilia crimes. They went from 1973 until 1976. He is believed to have killed one person and committed around 120 burglaries. The first one is believed to have been on March 19th of 1974 when he stole $50 in coins. Most of the burglaries were home break-ins where the homeowner's possessions would be completely vandalized or scattered around and women's underwear would be thrown out of drawers, out of closets, things like that. Inexpensive items would have been stolen, but he would leave higher-priced items and it wasn't like the higher-priced items were hidden. They would be out in the open, like expensive paintings, TVs, things like that. But inexpensive items, like plates, he would steal. Um, And then he would also rearrange the house. So he would, like, move pictures around just to make it very clear that someone was in their home. 
And to me, that shows that he just wanted to really torture them because there's nothing like knowing someone was in your house without you being there. It's just not, it doesn't give you a peace of mind. And I think he liked that. And he would also take money from piggy banks and coin jars. Stolen items would often include blue chip stamps, foreign or historic coins, personal items. And he even stole six weapons with all different ammunition. On November 30th, 1974, he committed 12 separate burglaries in one day. In one freaking day. But they said that multiple break-ins were not uncommon per day. Um, And the MO of these would be scaling fences and moving through established routes, meaning parks, walkways, ditches, trails. Um, He would attempt to open multiple points of entries. They were mostly windows. He would have multiple escape routes, which usually included windows, garages, and back doors, moving window screens into bedrooms, and he would occasionally place the screens on their bed. Um, He would place warning items on door handles, and those were usually um, like plates, as weird as it sounds. They were usually, um, just to, like, show that, like, hey, I was here. What you gonna do about it? He would wear gloves so he wouldn't leave any sort of fingerprints. So, on February 5th, 1975, a guy named Claude Snelling had to chase someone away from his house that he found under his daughter's window. We are now going to fast forward to September 11th of 1975. Claude woke up to a lot of noise happening around his house. Just like a ton of it. Things crashing. And he saw the the ransacker. I almost said the ransacker, but that's just me. Um, The ransacker trying to kidnap his 17-year-old daughter, Beth. Um, and the ransacker was telling Beth if she didn't follow instructions, he would stab or shoot her. The ransacker ended up shooting Clyde twice when he saw him. He left Beth, ran away. Claude was able to get back inside, but he did later on die. Um, and then when police were trying to investigate, Beth really couldn't remember anything. So police tried to, like, hypnotize her, um, to see if there was any clues that her brain was possibly trying to hide or cover up because of the trauma. And then police also put out $4,000 in rewards, which is equivalent to $19,366 today. Police also had more night patrol around where the ransacker frequented because he did have just like a certain area that he really liked to go to. On December 12th, 1975, the ransacker entered the backyard of a neighborhood he normally frequented. Detective William McGowan, who was on a stakeout in that garage, tried to arrest him, which to me is really weird. Like, every article I've read said that he was in the garage that the ransacker, like, attempted to break into, but how, like, was it just luck that he was in there when, you know, the ransacker tried to break in? Or did they, like, they were positive that that was probably going to be the next hit? Like, it blew my mind because it didn't honestly say. Um, but 
McGowan did catch the ransacker off guard. He fired his weapon as a warning, and then the ransacker did run off, and he jumped over some fences. Then he pulled out his own gun and shot the detective near his face, but it caused um, the flashlight that McGowan was holding to shatter. When the police came to investigate what all the ruckus was about, they ended up helping McGowan and making sure he was okay, but which is great, you know, fellow officer down, but this did cause the ransacker to get away. The evidence collected was a flashlight, tennis shoe tracks, dropped money, which were the blue chip stamps, and a blue sock full of coins. So that was pretty much all of the crimes that the Vasilia ransacker committed. Um, Honestly, just a lot of burglaries and then that one murder. But then the ransacker would be connected to the East Area Rapist. And, you know, it would be later found to be the same person. Um, the East Area Rapist started to sexually assault women when he moved to Sacramento. His MO would change as the East Area Rapist. He'd stalk middle-class neighborhoods at night, and he'd usually look for houses that only had one woman living there, um, with no spouse. And then the house that he would pick would be one story, would be by a school creek or trail, because as we know, it would allow him to have an easier escape route, because, you know, it already has that trail pulled out for him and then he police believed that he'd enter the home beforehand to make sure he knew which windows were unlocked because he would unlock them himself he would look to see where stuff was he would unload weapons if the house had any and then he'd place his own weapons in hidden spots that only he would know he would also call his victims months in advance to learn their schedules which to me is disgusting and that is why i don't answer phone calls that i don't know the number of but i mean it's also the 1970s so they don't have caller id yet stupid Most victims said that they would have either seen or heard the rapist before. So, if they found him, like, stalking their backyard um, and they saw him, then when he later on came to assault them, and, you know, obviously because he's the East Area Rapist, there's no surprise there, but he would, they would have either seen him or heard him when he was talking. Um, At first, he only targeted women who lived alone or had one kid and nobody else living there, like I said earlier, but he did later on graduate, in a sense, to assaulting couples. He usually broke in through windows that he'd make sure were open, wake the victims up by shining a flashlight in their eyes, and then threatening them with a gun. Now, he would bring his own ligatures, which honestly are just things like rope, shoelaces, stuff like that, so he could tie his victims up. But when he started to assault and victimize couples, he would have the woman tie her husband up or boyfriend up, and then he would tie the women up, and the victim said that the bindings were so tight that their hands would be numb for hours after being untied. Once everyone was tied up, he'd keep the husband tied up on his stomach in the bedroom, and then he would place dishes on top of his back, And this was because if he heard them rattle or if he heard, you know, them fall, he would threaten the husband by saying he would kill everyone in the family if he heard, or anyone in the house, if he heard all that ruckus. And 
that was just another mind torture game because can you imagine like you don't have to if you don't want to but like imagine your wife or girlfriend is in the living room being sexually assaulted by this man and you either get up and all of the things crash and everyone in your family and in the home gets killed or you lay there on the ground and let him sexually assault your wife knowing that you guys aren't going to die. Like, how do you live with that? Like, that that disgusted me. It is a new level of torture. Um, but part of his torture would also act like he left. He would, like, go and hide where the wife and husband had no idea where he was at. Because, again, like, the wife's in the living room and the husband's in the bedroom. And when they thought it was safe and he would start to hear the rattle, he would pop back out and continue sexually assaulting the wife all over again. Um, he would also, like, the rapes would go on for hours, but he would stop during them to make himself food, usually drinking a sandwich. Um, he would stop to go and throw clothes around, which, like, seems like a waste of time to me. Um, and then he'd go and drink their beer. Like, what? But a lo- some victims said they were victims, but not victims. Like, he'd break in their house, but some of them said that, like, he sometimes would have a problem getting it up. Um, Like, he just couldn't perform. And so, some of the houses he broke into, not all sexual assaults occurred there. Which, like, thank God, you know, because that's gross. He would steal cash and firearms, and then when he finally did leave, the victims would not know until the sun came up. They literally, like... He could leave at 3 a.m. and they would have they would probably wait there for another four or five hours waiting for the sun to come up because that's when they knew they were safe. Disgusting. This is why it was really hard for me to do this one. You know, I night scares me. It gets my anxiety going. And so doing most of my research at night and then reading this, I was like, mm-mm, mm-mm. He would always leave by going through multiple backyards to where police believed he'd either leave a bike somewhere or he had a car parked a few streets away and then he would either bike home or drive home as if like nothing ever happened. May of 1977, the attacks all of a sudden stopped, but then three months later in San Joaquin County, the attack started up again. In the summer of 1978, he attacked five times and then the attack stopped for another three months. But then in October of 1978, he moved to attacking people in Contra Costa County until July of 1979, where he committed a total of 50 rapes from June 28, 1976 to July 5, 1979. Now, I would include some of these names, but... The statute of limitations for the rapes were up when he was arrested. And not only that, but so many of them occurred and really none of the victims' names were given. And they definitely are heard. And it is, if we're going to talk about him, we should talk about them. But out of respect, since their names really weren't given, um, I did not want to say it on the podcast. But I will say he also did sometimes ask children that were in the house if they would like to join in the playtime he was having with their mom and dad. Absolutely disgusting. 
Um, on February 2nd, 1978, as when he went from being the East Area Rapist to the original Night Stalker. Um, I say original Night Stalker in quotations because, um, he was named the Night Stalker, but then when Richard Ramirez started his stalkings and killings and things like that, he became known as the Night Stalker, um, which, come on, come up with a clever name. Like, I need more than that. I need a more clever name. Don't give him a nickname that someone already else had. So then they renamed the Golden State Killer's previous killings as the original Night Stalker. So much fun. Um, so... As the East Area Rapist slash the original Night Stalker, he um, ended up killing Brian Maggery and his wife, Katie. They were out walking their dog when the Night Stalker came up to them and they were confronted by him. They tried to keep walking home, but then he stalked them down and then shot the couple in the head. On June 15th, 2016, I know we kind of jumped like forward, but it kind of connects everything together. That is when the police were able to connect the East Area Rapist, the Vasila Ransacker, and the original Night Stalker together. Um, and his murders slash stalking happened between 1979 and 1986. Um, so, um, he moved to Southern California after the East Area rapi Rapist crimes. Um, he moved to Southern California and he started killing his victims. That He just started doing it. Um, he started in Santa Barbara County in October of 1979. And the killings did stop in 1981, but then he had one random kill in 1986. The first murder on October 1st, 1979 was an attempted murder because thankfully the couple survived. Um, he had broken into their home and the couple had said he kept repeating to himself, I'm going to kill him. The man and woman were actually able to try to escape through a window when he left the room. She screamed loud enough so it alerted neighbors, but it also scared the stalker. He ran out of the house, got on his bike, and left. And it just so happened that one of his one of her, their neighbors, the couple's neighbors, happened to be an FBI agent who heard the scream and chased after the stalker. Um, he did get off his bike and he ran into the woods. Um... And that's where they lost him. But he, like I said, left his bike, but he also left his knife. Then they were able to link this attack with the second murder. Well, the second attack, but first murder by connecting shoe prints and shoelaces used to bind the victims. So the first murder, but second attack by the original Night Stalker happened December 30th of 1979. Robert Offerman was only 44 years old and Donna Manning was 35 and they were found shot in Robert's condo. Robert wasn't tied up, and police said it looked like he tried to fight back and basically attack his attacker. Neighbors did say they heard gunshots, and police found uh, dog paw prints at the scene, which did make them believe that the stalker brought the dog with him. Police think he got away by breaking into Robert's neighboring condo, the one that was directly attached to his, and it was empty, but he stole a bike. Um, and then they found it later abandoned in a whole different complex. On March 13th, 1980, Charlene Smith and Lyman Smith were found murdered in their home. It was clear that Charlene had been raped. They had found a log from their wood pile by the side of their house. And it was inside their home and it was used to beat the Smiths to death. 
instead of being tied up with shoelaces, this time they were tied up with drapery cord. Specifically for Charlene's wrist, the cord was tied in a Chinese diamond knot, which is very specific. Um, and it had been noted that in the East Area Rapist Attacks, he used the same diamond knot uh, technique. Um, and that is how, for a brief while, the murderer got the nickname Diamond Knot Killer. Um, but again, it was a very brief nickname. He has a lot of nicknames. August 19th of 1980, Keith and Patrice Harrington were found beat to death in their home, which was in a gated community. Patrice had also been raped, just like Charlene. The evidence pointed that the couple had been tied up. There wasn't a weapon or any ligatures left at the crime scene. The couple had only been married for three months, and Keith was 24 and Patrice was 27. Patrice was a nurse, um, and Keith was a medical student. Keith's brother, Bruce, actually spent $2 million supporting California's Proposition 69, which authorized DNA collection from all of California's felons and certain criminals. Now, this will come into play in the second episode, but the Golden State Killer did have a criminal background. He had been arrested before, before these crimes happened by like a few years. Uh, and so, basically, the California Proposition 69 was to get all DNA from felons, no matter what it was, if they were arrested to just get their DNA, so it would be easier to connect them in any cases or crimes that happen later, um, and they hopefully something like this can be avoided. February 6th of 1981, Manuela Whithone, I'm really sorry if I pronounced that incorrectly, I'm very, very sorry, um, was only 28 when she was found raped and murdered in her home. She also had signs of being tied up, but like Keith and Patrice, uh, the night stalker did not leave any evidence behind. Manuela was married, but her husband was away because he was actually hospitalized, and this did make her alone during the attack. Her TV was found in the backyard, which led police to believe that the night stalker wanted them to think it was just a robbery gone bad. July 27th of 1981, Sherry Domingo, 35, and Gregory Sanchez, 27, became the 10th and 11th murder victims from the original Night Stalker. They were attacked in Sherry's house, which was owned by one of her family members, and Sherry was only living there temporarily because the house was up for sale. The stalker entered the home from a small window that was in the bathroom. Gregory wasn't tied up, but was shot and wounded in the cheek. He was beat to death with a garden tool. Um, so he wasn't tied up and they believed that he was trying to fight back because he realized that it was the original Night Stalker that was attacking them. Um, and they did find him with clothes covering his head. None of their neighbors called in the gunshots even though they heard them. Sherry was raped and beat um, with bruises on her wrist and ankles, meaning she had been tied up. And near her bed were shipping twine and fibers from something unknown um and the fibers were found all over her body this led police to believe that the attacker worked as a painter or even at the calais real shopping center with a similar job to being a painter may 4th 1986 Jan um, janelle cruz who was only 18 was found in her home after being raped and beat 
Her family was on vacation in New Mexico when the, or not in New Mexico, they were in Mexico. Um, when the attack occurred, Janelle's stepfather reported that one of his pipe wrenches was missing. Police believe that this was the murder weapon. Um, initially, police in different jurisdictions really didn't talk about their cases that they had going on. Um, or that, so they didn't even know that these were connected. A detective in Sacramento believed that the East Area Rapist was responsible for some of the Diamond Knot Killer killings, which as the original Night Stalker killings. Um, the Santa Barbara police believed that those killings were performed by a local career criminal, but was later murdered himself. Without knowing about some of the murders, other police in other jurisdictions followed leads that obviously led them nowhere, but these leads would end up being relatives of the female victims. One person was later charged with two of the murders, but was later cleared thanks to the DNA test that they tested against the criminal profile um, that they had linked to all of the cases. Now, he did make phone calls. I was going to include the actual sound, um, but... I listened to a podcast called Morbid, and they did that, um, and it literally made me sick to my stomach. So I'm just going to read them. I'm not going to insert them. If you guys actually do want to hear them, let me know, because I did create a podcast. Um, not a podcast. Oh, my gosh. I created an Instagram for this podcast um, where I'm going to post pictures and stuff like that. So if you want to see that, I can probably post it on my Instagram. Um, so the phone calls... The first one happened on March 18, 1977. The Sacramento County uh, Sheriff's Office received three calls from someone claiming to be the East Area Rapist. None of these calls were recorded, um, but the first two ha that happened um, were 15 minutes of each other. They were identical, and at the end of both of the calls, the caller would laugh and then hang up. Then at 5 p.m., the final call came in. This and this time the caller said, I'm the East Area Rapist and I have my next victim already stalked and you guys can't catch me. And then that night, that victim was attacked. On December 2nd, 1977, a man claiming to be the rapist called the Sacramento Police Department saying, you're never going to catch me, East Area Rapist, you dumb fuckers. I'm going to fuck again tonight. Be careful. The call was recorded and later released. Just like the last victim, the victim he had said he was going to kill was attacked that night. On December 9th, 1977, a victim actually received the next phone call, which would be from her future attacker. The caller said, Merry Christmas. It's me again. Watt Avenue on December 10th, 1977. Now I added the title that they named this call because it actually gave away his location and they still didn't catch him. Right before 10 p.m., Sacramento police received two identical phone calls again. They both said, I'm going to hit tonight, Watt Avenue. Both of the calls were recorded and was confirmed that the person who placed these two calls was the same person and the same person who called on December 2nd. The police inc um, increased patrol that night, but then at 2.30 a.m., police saw a masked man on a bike and, fled and he fled from police when they caught up to him on Watt Avenue. But he got away, and then again at 4.30 a.m., he uh, was caught by police. He left his bike and fled on foot, and they still didn't catch him. And the bike was stolen. Like, how? How did you not catch this man? Um, on 
January 2nd, 1978, the first unknown victim seemed to have received a wrong number call. Uh, or the first known victim. Sorry, I'm like reading my notes and I was like, why is there an L? K-N-O-N. Oh, W-N. Oh my gosh. Um, I meant known. I don't know why there's an L there. Um, the first known victim seemed to have received a wrong number call asking for Ray, which was recorded. But then later that night, she got another phone call saying, gonna kill you, gonna kill you, gonna kill you, bitch, 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 fucking whore. Police did confirm that the second caller was the first caller as well and was confirmed to be her attacker as well. Counseling um, service. This one happened on January 6, 1978. Someone called the contact counseling service claiming to be the East Area Rapist. He said, I have a problem. I need help because I don't want to do this anymore. He talked for a bit. Um, more, but then he said, I believe that you are trying, you're tracing this call and hung up. Later calls that he did were in 1980 or 1982, a victim received a call at her work, which was a Denny's. Her rapist threatened to rape her again, according to investigator Paul Holes, who will be up in a later and he'll be in part two. Um, cause he was one of the main investigators to find out who the Golden State Killer was. Um, but he believed the attacker, attacker had just went to Denny's to eat and ended up recognizing the waitress as one of his victims there and called to torture her again. In 1991, a previous victim received a call from her attacker and spoke to him for a minute. She heard another woman in the back as well, um, but she also heard children, which made the investigators think he had a family. The final call came in 2001 on april 6 2001 a victim of the east area rapist received a phone call the day after an article in the sacramento Bee linked the east area rapist to the original night stalker and he asked her remember when we played now in 2001 there hadn't been no killings for over 10 years way over 10 years almost 20 years um, I was 15, 15 years because his last killing was in 1986 and it like, where is this random burst coming from in 2001 where you're like, remember when we played disgusting, absolutely disgusting. Um, so we are a, like a while in like half an hour in. So, we're going to end it here. Part two, we are going to talk about the investigation. We're going to finally find out who the Golden State Killer is. So, don't Google it, but you probably will, but don't. Um, we're going to find out who other suspects were, um, other suspected murders that the Golden State Killer did, more of his backstory, and then, of course, the trial and things like that. Um, I'm really excited for the next one. I'm kind of excited that it's a two-part episode, um, but I hope you guys have a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful rest of your week, and hopefully the second episode will be posted by this Tuesday or Wednesday. I love you all. Bye!